Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Magic in the Moon podcast. As always, I'm your host, David, and I am back. As I'm sure most of you have noticed, it has been quite a while since I posted the episode. I think it was back in October, and it's uh, as of me recording this, it's now December 8th. So it's been um, about a two-month gap or so, and I just appreciate everyone being patient with me. Uh, as obviously, I'm not posting content as much as I'd like to be or as consistently as I'd like to be, but um, had some personal and like family things to take care of and also I'm getting into like final season with my school stuff so just I had to kind of give my time to other things for a while but I'm excited to be back um, and to have an episode for you so this week we're going to get right into it we're going to talk about Isis um, Isis is a large part of my personal spirituality and um, I want to talk about her and also it's appropriate I think seasonally because there's a festival that celebrated um around the time of the winter solstice that commemorated the five days uh, it took her to birth Horus. So a little bit early for that, but it's still December. So we're going to talk about Isis and kind of the mythos and historical context of her and then how you can incorporate her into your spirituality if you would like to. So let's talk about uh, the myths of Isis, or rather the myth, the most important myth of Isis. It's often called the Isis-Osiris myth. Um, or the Isis Horus myth. But before we start, let's talk about what a myth is. Um, a myth does not mean that something is untrue. That's the popular conception of a myth. Um, right? We hear the word myth and we think that it's a farce or it's false or it's fictional. But scholars of religious studies, such as myself, we don't view myths this way. And my personal take, and obviously like I'm not entirely unbiased, but um, myths are not untrue myths rather are stories that are so deeply true they require work to uncover what is actually being said and being conveyed in these stories myths reveal truths in us and in a way that's why we don't really read myths as much as we are read by myths and myths are only untrue to people that don't understand them and myths can change, and it's important to know why myths and stories can change. Myths will change because cultures change. Um, this is particularly relevant in the context of the Isis story. As you know, what is now known as Egypt was inhabited by Greeks and Romans and other societies. The context of her story changed. Um, so myths change because cultures change, and when cultures change, the stories that they tell each other also change. And when a story stops being able to change, when it loses its adaptability, they tend to die off. Okay. Um, something else I'd like to kind of address as like a preface before we like get into the bulk of this. There is a tendency I've noticed in like eclectic pagan spaces, and this is no judgment because like I'm very eclectic with what I do as well, but um, I've noticed a tendency to kind of reduce myths and sacred stories into like a weird universalism and there is no universal myth um attempts to universalize myths across cultures in my opinion tends to kind of reduce them uh to something that's very flat and generic and it kind of takes away their cultural roots and context and it kind of minimizes their distinctiveness of course there are myths between cultures that have you know similarities and commonalities and things but they're commonalities, they're not universalities. And commonality allows us to acknowledge that there are things that are similar, 
without disregarding cultural roots and important differences. Because myths are tied to their cultures and their landscapes. So when we remove a myth from that context, they kind of lose their meaning, right? So if we look at like biblical literature, for example, that is rooted in a specific time and place. So when you try and shove the gospel story in like rural Texas, for example, starts to make less sense. So to understand a myth in its entirety, we need to understand the cultures that they come from and the places in which they occur because they cross borders and they cross cultures. So while it's true that myths cannot be divorced from their cultures and their landscapes, they can adapt and transcend borders and transcend cultures. So that's not to say that the biblical narrative is not relevant to someone that lives in rural Texas, but it's to say that that context and the meaning, kind of the spirit of that story as it applies to someone living there is not the same as the ancient Middle East where it was written down. So changes and adaptations should be acknowledged while still respecting the original cultures and the original context of the stories. And stories themselves are multivalent. Um, they have layers. Myths especially have lots of layers. They have more than one meaning. So if you go into a myth to only find one singular meaning, you're going to end up very frustrated. And then quickly, before we kind of get into like the, the meat, the beef of this story of Isis, there are three metaphors I would like you to consider. One is that myths are eyes. They show us things that we would not understand without them. Two, myths are windows. The eyes see the surface level, but the window looks through the surface to reveal a deeper hidden meaning. And three, myths are mirrors. They allow us to see and confront things within ourselves because myths ask us ultimately who we are and who we would like to become. Okay, now let's talk about ISIS. <laughs> so um, for those that don't know, or maybe you do know, but are not very familiar with her perhaps, um, Isis is a goddess that originates in Egypt, ancient Egypt, of course, and her worship spread throughout the Greco-Roman world. She was first mentioned in the Old Kingdom period, which is about from the late 2600s to the early 2100s BCE, and she is the main character, or one of the main characters, of the Isis-Osiris myth, in which she resurrects her slain brother and husband, Osiris, and gives birth to his son, Horus, which we'll talk about in a moment. She was believed to help the dead enter the afterlife as she had helped her husband, and she was considered the divine mother of the pharaoh who was likened to her son Horus. Her maternal aid was invoked in healing spells to benefit ordinary people, and originally she kind of had a limited, like, smaller role in, like, the upper elite classes and, like, temple rituals, but um, she was very prominently invoked in funerary practices, and um, the average everyday people invoked her help in magic spells a lot. So during the New Kingdom period, which is from about the middle of the 1000s BCE to the early 1000s BCE, remembering that in BCE we count backwards, um, she kind of took on traits that had originally belonged to Hathor, who had been like um, a more prominent goddess of earlier times. And a lot of the associations and powers that were attributed to her were kind of absorbed um, by Isis. So if you've ever seen images of Isis where she's wearing like um, a headdress with the sun or like the sun disc is between like uh, horns or antlers of a cow. That is something that um, Isis kind of inherited from Hathor. 
the first millennium BCE, Osiris and Isis became the most widely worshipped of the Egyptian gods, and Isis absorbed the traits of Hathor and other um, earlier goddesses. The royalty in Egypt and their southern neighbors in Nubia built temples dedicated to Isis, and her temple at Philae was a religious center for Egyptians and Nubians. Her magical power was said to be greater than that of all the other gods, and she was said to protect the kingdom from its enemies, govern the skies and the natural world, and have power over fate itself. In the Hellenistic period, which is like the 300s BCE, when Egypt was ruled by the Greeks, Isis was worshipped by the Greeks and Egyptians, along with um, a new syncretic god, Serapis, who was kind of a fusion of Osiris and Hades, and also kind of Zeus and Dionysus, and like a little bit of Demeter, but that's kind of a long story. Um, but this worship kind of spread throughout the Mediterranean world, and Greek devotees of Isis became more and more common, and they kind of gave her characteristics from their own gods, like the invention of marriage, um, being from Hera, and like protection of Sips at sea, like from Aphrodite. So they kind of assimilated these characteristics of their Greek divinities and kind of put them onto Isis, and she retained strong links with Egypt um, and other Egyptian gods that were popular in the Greek world, like Harpocrates, and Osiris. Eventually, as Greek culture was absorbed by the Roman Empire in the first century BCE, the cult of Isis became part of the Roman state religion, and Roman devotees to Isis were a smaller portion of the population, but they were spread throughout all of the empire's territory at that time. Her following developed distinctive festivals, such as Navigidium Isis, which was a ceremony that honored her as the patroness of ships at sea, and she developed um, initiation ceremonies that kind of resembled those of the other like Mediterranean mystery cults. The worship of Isis um, eventually was ended by the rise of Christianity during the 4th to the 6th centuries BCE, or excuse me, CE, common era, and her worship may have influenced some Christian beliefs, um, particularly the veneration of Mary, but the evidence for this is ambiguous and is often debated among scholars. I have thoughts on that that I will save uh, for another time. But Isis continues to appear in Western culture, particularly in esotericism and modern paganism, and she remains an important divine figure. Okay, we're talking about the story now, after all of that. So the context of the Isis story, right? It's an Egyptian myth. It originates in about 2400 BCE. It was written in hieroglyphs and coffins and on pyramids and what we now call the Book of the Dead. But uh, a common misconception is that like it's one singular, like a literal book when that's not true. So when we say Book of the Dead, we're actually referring to these writings that are on coffins, on pyramids, in burial places that we've kind of just compiled over time um, that tell similar stories. And we call that the Book of the Dead, but kind of collectively. But there's not like one literal book that is the Book of the Dead. So these stories were recited to help the dead pass into the afterlife. And this Isis story was very, very popular at the time. So this is a story that pretty much everybody would have known in Egypt at this point. We're going to talk about the Ennead. Um, the Ennead is basically means the nine, and it refers to nine gods that kind of comprise one version of the Egyptian pantheon. So this was Atum, who was kind of the primeval androgynous creator deity. They arose from like the primordial waters, the beginning of time. Then there is Shu, the god of the air. 
Tesnut, the goddess of moisture, Geb, who is the god of the earth, and Nut, who is the goddess of the sky. And their children are Osiris, who is the god of agriculture and fertility, and eventually he becomes the lord of the underworld. Isis, who is associated with magic and wisdom and birth and light. Set, who is the god of strength and deserts and storms. Nephthys, associated with magic and death and darkness. And Horus, who is the son of Isis and Osiris, who we'll talk about a bit later. So everything starts with water. And watery origins are very common in a lot of creation stories. Um, and I think we see this reflected um, in nature, right? We humans, like we begin life in water. We are in semen and seminal fluid and sperm. And eventually as fetuses, you know, we're developing an amniotic fluid. Um, we say that when a woman goes into labor, that the waters have broken, right? And the creator Atum, he arose from the waters alone. And here's a quote that is attributed to Atum. I am the eternal spirit. I arose from the pravim of waters. Evil is an abomination to me. I am the creator of the domain where I live. I am the word that never dies. All things were mine when I was alone. I am Ra and all his manifestations. I am the great one. I came into being myself and created the company of all the gods. I am he who is irresistible to the other gods. I have fulfilled my desires when I was alone. Before there was another to be with me, I became creative on my own. It was I who spat forth Shu and Tefnut, where before there had been one god, now there were three. After an age, I rubbed my fist, and my heart came into my mouth, and I wept tears, and humankind came into existence. So Atum comes into existence alone. He spits. His saliva becomes the new gods, Tefnut, the moisture goddess, and Shu, the god of the air. And then he masturbates and cries, and his semen and his tears mix together on the earth and become the first human beings. So we're going to talk about Nut and Geb. They are the children of Tefnut and Shu. Nut is the sky goddess, and Geb is the earth god. And we see this um, as kind of standing out, because in a lot of different uh, traditions, it's oftentimes the sky father and the earth mother. But here we have that inverted, and it's the sky mother and the earth father. And in their imagery, um, Geb is kind of shown lying on his back and he has an erect phallus and Nut is kind of overstretched on top of him. And Geb represents the coffin of a deceased person and represents the earth. And Nut is covering the earth as the sky. Um, and then by extension, she's protecting the coffin and the body. And this preservation of the body was essential for the soul to enter the afterlife. So the sky arching over the earth was symbolic of the funeral process where Nut was invoked to protect the body until it could be embalmed and mummified. So the ancient Egyptians saw this story of Nut and Geb embodied in their funeral rituals. So Nut and Geb fall in love and they have four children, Osiris, Isis, Set, and Nephthys. Osiris and Isis are the elder siblings and they become the queen and king of Egypt. Set is jealous of his brother, and he kills Osiris and becomes the king. He cuts his brother's body into pieces and scatters them throughout the world. Isis puts them back together and brings them back to life with her magic and becomes pregnant with their son. Then Horus is born. And if you notice the whole like jealous brother killing his brother thing, um, it's pretty similar to the Cain and Abel story from the Bible, but you can guess which one is much older. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. So the conflict begins, right? Osiris, as the eldest son of Geb and Nut, becomes the king, 
and he rules Egypt with his sister and wife Isis. And again, sounds weird to us, but in these mythologies, there's sibling marriage is pretty common, like Zeus and Hera were brother and sister as well. Um, so they they're in charge. They're the king and the queen. Set and his sister and wife Nephthys, they serve in their royal court. So Set is jealous of his brother, but Nephthys is very supportive and very devoted to Isis and Osiris. And Osiris is kind and a generous ruler, and he is loved by the people and by the other gods. Um, Set transforms into like this hideous monster, and he kills Osiris and cuts him up into pieces, and Isis weeps for him, and Nephthys mourns with her. So Isis and Nephthys, they travel all over Egypt, and they find all of Osiris's body parts. And Isis puts them back together, and she breathes life into him and resurrects him from the dead. And here's another kind of common theme that we see in myths, is that the, the feminine characters, the goddesses, are the fixers. They're the problem solvers. They're the healers and the comforters. Um, when something like really needs fixing, it's usually the goddesses, not the gods, that solve the problems. And we see another example of this um, in the abduction of Persephone. We have Hakatse accompanying Persephone in the underworld. We have Demeter forcing Zeus to release her. Um, Another example of that. Anyways, Isis becomes pregnant, and Osiris, um, because he had died, was no longer permitted to be the king of the gods. So he descends to the underworld to be the ruler there. And Anubis, who had that title before, he becomes a psychopomp-type figure who escorts souls to the underworld at that point. And Set is now the king. So Isis gives birth to Horus, and when he comes of age... Horus challenges his uncle for the throne. Horus is the rightful king, and Set proposes a contest to have the winner becoming the king. So Isis sets a trap for him, and she captures him. She almost kills him, but he begs for his life. And like, this is her brother. So she's moved by compassion, and she lets him go. But Horus is furious at his mother for releasing Set. So he becomes angry with her and then the other gods kind of lose respect for Horus because Isis was held in the highest regard. So Set challenges Horus to a boat race and he promises that the winner will become the king. And for added difficulty, Set says that the boats should be made of stone. So Horus builds a wooden boat but then he covers it in limestone plaster to give it the appearance of being made of stone. And then Set's boat is made of stone he followed the rules kind of ironic for a god of chaos but he does follow the rules so set's boat of course immediately sinks because it's made of stone um but he gets angry and he transforms into a hippopotamus and he destroys horus's boat so set's boat sank and horus cheated but then the other gods that are watching this, they're like, it's a tie. So it's a tie for some reason. Um, but now the gods are in a debate. So they feel sympathetic to Horus, but they're upset with him because how he treated his mother. And they're not sure what to do. So they go to the underworld and they ask Osiris for help. And he doesn't really say a whole lot about it. All he says is, my son is the true king. So the other gods agree with him, but they decide that Horus cannot take the throne by way of murder like Set did. And this is where we're presented with the ethical dilemma of this story. Is it better to have an unfit king? Or is it better to have a true king who becomes a murderer himself? 
So Set, who is still king at this time, he declares that Isis and Horus are now outlaws and they're forced to flee. So Isis hides Horus in the bushes near the Nile River, and this is where you can see the influence of what later became um, the story of Moses in the book of Exodus. And Isis travels the world with Horus, and she receives help from the other gods, she receives help from humans, and she uses her magic to heal the sick and kind of just do lots of helpful things, and she becomes beloved by humans because she's willing to interact with them and help them and really be a goddess mm -hmm. of the people. So where the other gods felt kind of further away and beyond humanity and like far removed from like the concerns of someone's daily life, Isis was seen as someone who would call, excuse me, who would come when she was called, that if you asked her for help, that she would help you and that she cared about the people. So the other gods are sympathetic to Isis, but they're afraid to help her because they're scared of Set. And because the gods didn't help very often, Isis was forced to hide among the humans, and she shapeshifted into an old woman. And she was accompanied by seven scorpions who acted as her bodyguards. So they come across a wealthy woman, and they ask her if she will give them some food and a place to stay for the night. The wealthy woman doesn't realize that she's speaking to the goddess, and she's like, no, I'm not going to help. And one of Isis's scorpions stings the woman's son in retaliation, and he almost dies. But Isis is moved by compassion, and she heals the woman some of her magic. So realizing that the old woman is Isis, the wealthier woman is like, hey, I'm so sorry, and she gives them food and shelter. So more time passes, and after a long time, Set and Horus agree to have one final battle, and the winner will take the throne. Horus wins, but Ra, the god of the sun, he favors Set. And he basically says, hey, I know that you won, but I would prefer that Set is the king, so I'm not going to allow Horus to take the throne. Horus leaves and kind of locks himself away in his chamber. He's upset. And Isis goes to like comfort him. And this is where we have a couple different versions of the story. Um, and either Horus does not recognize his mother, or he's upset with her for intruding on him, and he cuts off her head. But Thoth, the god of wisdom, replaces her head with a cow's head. So again, we talked earlier about how that's um, an attribute that was given to Isis from Hathor, but uh, this is the mythological explanation for why Isis is sometimes depicted with the head of a cow. Now we're going to talk about a sexual battle of wits. So Set um, asks Horus to have sex with him, and he's like, yeah, cool. I'd like to have sex with you. So uh, Set believes that he has ejaculated inside of Horus, but Horus tricks him. And he had actually done so between Horus's legs and his semen fell into the Nile River. Horus then puts his own semen on some lettuce, which Isis feeds to Set. And in front of the other gods, Set calls forth his semen, which he believes will come out of Horus, thinking that he can prove to the gods that he has dominated him. But instead, his semen comes out of the river, and he is mocked by the gods. Then, Horus calls forth his semen, which comes out of Set's mouth, proving that he had defeated him. Seeing this, Ra decides that Horus should be the king and allows him to take the throne. But having compassion for his uncle and also his lover now, Horus agrees to divide Egypt between the two of them, with Horus ruling Upper Egypt and Ra ruling Lower Egypt. Excuse me, not Ra, uh, Set ruling Lower Egypt. So Horus represents the Nile River and the sky and the fertility of both and kingship and royalty and Set represents the desert and the earth and storms and kind of the outer regions. 
So how does this myth travel? How does this story change? Egypt eventually is conquered by the Greece, and eventually Greece falls to Rome, and the myth is reinterpreted as Egypt's rulers change. So the myth in Greece is different. It's similar, but different. Set builds an extravagant chest that is the exact measurement of his brother Osiris's body. And at a party, Set says, hey, I have this really pretty chest. It's made of really fine woods. It's decorated you know, with gold and precious stones. And whoever can fit inside the chest, I will give the gift of the chest to you. Like You can keep it. So all of the gods at this party take turns getting inside the chest. And lo and behold, Osiris perfectly fits inside. And then Set closes the chest with Iris, excuse me, with Osiris inside of it, and he locks it, throws it in the ocean. And the chest washes ashore in Greece, and a tree grows around it. Isis then travels to Greece, and she removes the chest from the tree. And this was an explanation of Isis's worship spreading to the Mediterranean, um, because the story gives the explanation of she had to go to Greece to retreat her husband. And after Isis receives the chest, she cuts, excuse me, Set cuts it into pieces and he kills Osiris. And then now he scatters his body parts all over the world. And similar theme here, Isis finds the pieces of his body, except for his penis, which fell into the river and was eaten by a fish. But then she magically reconstructs a new penis and she impregnates herself with it and eventually gives birth to Horus. And then the story essentially plays out the same way uh, from that point on. So, and this had an effect um, on religious life in Greece. This story really, really did. Because the prominent Greek goddesses like Aphrodite or Hera or Demeter, they kind of become absorbed into the worship of Isis. They're still worshipped on their own, of course, but a lot of their characteristics and their devotions become part of Isis's worship in Greece. And it kind of begs the question, why would this Greek tradition that's so ancient and rich um, why would they become eclipsed by the worship of Isis, who was a foreign deity? And Isis is a diverse goddess. This makes her adaptable and makes her able to travel. Because if you recall earlier, I was talking about myths and the function of myths and how a story needs to be able to adapt if it's going to survive. And Isis's character makes her adaptable, which makes it easy for her worship to travel. Isis becomes the great goddess, and she's worshipped from Egypt to Greece to Rome and to Asia Minor, and she eclipsed in many ways the importance of the indigenous goddesses of Greece. And I think one potential explanation of this, not so much in like a literal or theological sense, but in a literary sense, the Greek goddesses had their faults, but Isis had none. She's a powerful sorceress, she's a loving mother, she helps people that were unkind to her, and she even helps her own son after he decapitates her. So Isis is faultless. So at this time, historically, also, Rome was just completely fascinated by the culture of Egypt. And we see this in Apuleius' novel, The Metamorphosis, which is also called um, The Golden Ass. And the main character wants to learn magic, and he asks his girlfriend to cast a spell to turn him into a bird, but things go wrong, and he turns into a donkey, i.e. an ass. And as a donkey, he travels throughout the empire trying to find a way to reverse this spell. And without meaning to, he stumbles across some devotees of Isis, and they give him roses to eat, which is a symbol of the goddess. He eats the roses, 
spell reverses, he returns into himself, and in his gratitude, he dedicates his life to Isis and becomes her priest. So as Isis's worship travels to the Empire, it merges with the earlier mystery traditions. Um, these traditions required initiation, etc. And we see this influence even after the classical period. The imagery of Isis and her infant Horus influenced Christian ideas of Mary and Jesus, at least in, in um, an aesthetic way. We see a lot of artwork that shows us that. And Isis remained influential into the Middle Ages. Um, she influenced Freemasonry, and her impact on the Masons led to her influencing basically all of Western esotericism. The philosopher Heraclitus once said that nature loves to hide, and because of the mysteries around her, an image of Isis lifting her veil came to be a symbol of science. Because science and knowledge are hidden, but like the goddess, they can be discovered if we look for them. So what about Isis today? What does it mean to be a devotee of Isis now? And I think one example of this is Nawal el-Sadawi. She was an Egyptian feminist author, an activist, a physician, and a psychiatrist. And she called herself a daughter of Isis. And not just in a figurative way, but literally, she worshipped the goddess. She was the founder and president of the Arab Women's Solidarity Association and the co-founder of the Arab Association for Human Rights. She received honorary degrees on three continents, and she's won many awards, including the Council of Europe's North-South Prize, Belgium's International Prize, and the International Peace Bureau's Sean McBride Peace Prize. She was the Director of Ministry of Public Health and the Assistant General Secretary of the Egyptian Medical Association. And when her 1971 book, Women and Sex, was published, she was fired from most of her positions. Um, her books discuss sexual assaults and other acts of violence, primarily against women. And she was imprisoned in 1981 for what the government said were her dangerous feminist views. But after her release from... Sorry about that. My audio cut off a little bit. But um, Nawal uh, El-Sadawi, she was imprisoned in 1981. Um, the government of Egypt said that she was promoting dangerous feminist views. And eventually, when she was released from prison, she fled to the United States um, among continued threats from extremists. And she eventually did return to Egypt many, many years later, and she lived the rest of her life there until she died in March of 2021 at the age of 89. Nawal el-Sadawi was influential for feminism in general, but also um, especially for women's liberation in Egypt and the Arab world. She drew attention to women's issues in Islam, um, especially sexual assaults and female genital mutilation, but she left a real legacy. So this kind of brings us to a close. Who is Isis? The goddess is an ideal queen, a loving wife, a perfect mother, a powerful sorcerer. She ceaselessly searched for her husband to bring him back to life. She protected her son at the risk of her own life. She helped and healed those that even treated her unjustly. And she put her life on the line for her principles, just like Nawal. And I'd like to close it with a prayer to Isis. Mighty Mother, daughter of the Nile, I rejoice as you join me with the rays of the sun. Sacred Sister, Mother of Magic, lover of Osiris, Mother of all things, Isis who is, Isis who was, and Isis who shall be, I honor you and sing your praises, glorious goddess of love 
and of light, I open my heart to you. And that's all I have for you guys this week. I will see you next time.